Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rabbit. Thank you for welcome. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Uh, back in 1710, Jonathan Swift wrote an essay called The Art of Political Lying, which I've often referred to in writing and uh, and as a reference point. And one of my favorite paragraphs, not so not too far away from the beginning, is but though the devil be the father of lies, he seems like other great inventors to have lost much of his reputation by the continual improvements that have been made upon him. What sort of improvements are we talking about here? Well, my guest uh, for this particular episode is Bernard Keane, who's the author of a new book called Lies and Falsehoods, The Morrison Government and the new culture of deceit. So we'll be exploring the art of political lying and what goes on uh, in the context of politics in Australia today. Bernard, thanks for joining me. Good to be here, Tom. Now, back in the day when uh, the late Christopher Hitchens addressed a Google Google Books function, um, held at the time of the publication of his book, God is Not Great, he defended. He decided he would defend the subtitle uh, of that particular book. Your subtitle is "The Morrison Government and the New Culture of Deceit." I've just quoted uh, Jonathan Swift in seventeen ten. What's new about political lying? What's well, novel about Morrison? Lying, as you say, has always been with us, like the poor, I suppose. Um, in fact, the very politics, the very art of politics is about deceit. It's about misrepresenting your opponents. It's about glorifying yourself, uh, doing the same thing with your policies and your opponent's policies. So the very act of trying to solicit someone's vote is found in, in an important sense on deception. But um, the, the best way to articulate what's different about the, the political environment, particularly in the United States, to a somewhat lesser degree in the UK, and increasingly, I fear, here, is that deceit now is much more about simply insisting that reality doesn't exist, that uh, there is no truth, or at least if there is a truth, it doesn't matter, and that deception is not merely acceptable, which I think it is becoming in Australia, but certainly in the lesson from particularly Trump and to a, to a degree Boris Johnson as well in the UK, is that deception, constant deception, can be a positive feature of a political persona, that people actually like lies. They like uh, being lied to. They know that they're being lied to, and in some cases, uh, they actually love the liar all the more. Now, as I said, that's not quite the situation that we've reached here in Australia, but I think we've reached the point where there is an increasing disregard for truth and increasing disregard for um, the idea that if you said something three years ago or three months ago or three weeks ago, um, and then it, that position becomes inconvenient, you can't simply say, I didn't say that. Or you can't simply say, that was never our policy. Um, you've got to try and have some sort of recognition that there is a core truth about which we engage as both uh, 
politicians and as media observers and for that matter as citizens but there is some sort of common reality to which we can all kind of try and be consistent and it's that that I think is in quite serious danger uh, and we can see the consequences I think to a degree in the United States with the uh, upsurge in in, uh, uh, in extremism and violence I think that's that is very much uh, a destination that we may, we may well end up at uh, if we follow this, continue to follow the same path. Well, if we can take, uh, the, I guess, the whole raft of material you, you wrote about in the dossier, which I want to touch on uh, in a moment, but one of the core uh, turning points, I think, in the Trump administration was when, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I think it was Kellyanne Conway that coined the phrase, you know, alternative truth. Mm, alternative facts. facts. Yeah. And at that point, I began to think that that, that was a that was a, a kind of a fork in the road because once you started talking about alternative facts, you began to have you, you began to create a parallel universe. So you can see a parallel universe being created. Uh, in public discourse. Uh, is that a, a reasonable conclusion for me to reach? I, I think in relation to that, I mean, that's one aspect of what happened with the Trump administration. I, I think even, I, look, this whole thing is Trump was, was a would-be would dictator, I think has been a little overstated. Uh, I think there is a nub of truth to it, uh, but I, does, I do think it's, it's been, you know, that, that's, those sort of terms were a bit casually thrown around. Um, uh, both during his presidency and since then. But one of the characteristics of populists and what you might call sort of authoritarian-minded leaders is a rejection of the idea and indeed a bitter resentment of the idea that there is some sort of external reality or higher truth to which they can be held accountable. So if a leader says, I'm going to do, if that kind of leader says, I'm going to do X and then fails to do X, the act of saying reality does not accord with your uh, prediction that X would happen becomes in a way subversive. And one way obviously to get around that is to say, well, here are these alternative facts which actually show that X was achieved. And that was the situation that was playing out with, uh, with the inauguration crowds. Um, but in a sense, that, so that relates to the accountability kind of framework, you know, what is real versus what does the leader claim is real and what is the, uh, what is the discrepancy. I think the, more, the, the bigger characteristic of Trump and his lies was and remains that in lying so flagrantly, so egregiously, so offensively on all subjects, including his own actions, which is what Scott Morrison does, or about his opponents, which um, lie, in a way, was a little bit more cement binding him and his supporters. That is, his supporters actually liked his offensive lying because they, what they believed was he was a, here is a man who will say anything for us. Here is a man who will do anything in our cause of fighting this evil elite that is trying to destroy our lives. And that, um, you know, that uh, there, there's a there's a, 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 a some sort of a, there's a term that's been coined by a US sociologist in relation to Trump, but which, which I can't quite recall. It's in the book, but 
he he compared it to gang gang tattoos on on one's face. I it's a demonstration that you are taking yourself beyond the pale of civilized behavior to signal your identification with the group. And what better way to do to both display and to in return obtain loyalty than to say, I have taken myself outside the parameters of normality to be with you. And you know, I'm committed to you for good. That was what you know Donald Trump's lies primarily sought. And you know, there's a bunch of other things that they sought as well, but that that binding capacity, I think, was incredibly important. And one of the reasons why Trump elicits such quite astonishing levels of loyalty and support from from people, you know, even people who, who quite, you know, people who, who refuse to believe in COVID and were fervent Trump supporters, even as they breathed their last in ICUs, you know, across the South. I mean, these are people who, uh, you know, loyalty is almost too weak a word. These are these are absolutely, this is cult-like uh, obsession. And, you know, I think his lies and his willingness to lie egregiously played a big part in that. Yeah, I don't think we're, we're quite, quite at the cult-like obsession here in Australia. But if we, if we go to the most recent one that Morrison had, and, uh, and I know you'll have to update the book for a second or third edition to this, but the electronic vehicles one is the one that is the most recent one that people will have seen. Hmm. Um, how have you observed that? I thought that was a very eccentric choice by Morrison because he's been he's been tripped up on this before. So everyone knows that he you know he campaigned against electric vehicles and ridiculed them. Uh, in the 2019 campaign. Um, early, I think it was last year, actually, he was talking about electric vehicles. And a journalist said, well, you know, why, why are you talking about electric vehicles? You, you know, you ridiculed them in 2019. And his response was, I never ridiculed that technology. It's good technology. So he, he, was, he already had a run on the board. I, I, it's in the book as a bonus lie. You know, it's, you, don't, you, you know, buy one, get one free. Um, from Morrison because, you know, the original claims about electric vehicles were false as well. So he was already aware that this is an issue where, um, you know, there was potential for, him, for people to say, hang on, what's going on? And yet he and his brains trust decided as their first main way to display that they were actually committed to the 2050 net zero plan, plan was to talk about electric vehicles. Now, he could have talked about solar panels. He could have talked about any number of renewables technologies. He could have talked about bloody carbon capture and storage, you know, which is another, which is, you know, a complete scam. But nonetheless, you know, the public haven't worked out that it's a scam. And he could have, could have done any of that. But for some reason, he decided to choose to talk about electric vehicles and how the government had a policy, not very good policy, uh, about electric vehicles. And I was just talking to Labor people in the days after that. They were mystified as to why Morrison had handed them such a gift and handed the media such a gift. It seemed an extraordinarily eccentric choice. Um, it was at the same time, by the way, well, it was, it was uh, I think it was within a few hours of him also using the phrase can-do capitalism. Um, and anyone, anyone with any experience in Queensland politics would tell you, don't use the phrase can-do, just, just don't ever use it. Um, because all it does is remind everyone in Queensland of um, Candida Campbell Newman, uh, who's, uh, you know, faint we're all uh, aware of. And yet the PMO charged ahead and used Candida capitalism uh, as well. 
Um, a phrase, by the way, that has not been trotted out since that very day. I think the penny might have dropped or someone from Queensland might have rung up the BMO and said, have you guys got any idea what, what that phrase invokes? So, you know, perhaps you could put it down to a bad day in the PMO and amongst your senior advisors picking the kind of talking points for the next couple of days um, because there's no real other explanation for why they would venture back into electric vehicles. I mean, you really gave electric vehicles a kicking and all the sound bites are there and they're pithy and they're quick and, uh, you know, they've got all the spark and and fire of a of a of an election campaign soundbite, uh, and now of course he wants us to believe that he never said them. I mean, it's a it's you know as I said, it's a very eccentric choice. One of the issues that then comes up, given the you, you've just used the word sparky and and you know, the the notion of the punchy soundbite, um, it the thought occurred to me over the past week when in watching the promotional material roll out in relation to your book that you, and I may be being unfair here but there may be a um, a focus from you know, parts of the electorate on on celebrity um, on the ability of a politician to entertain mm. rather than govern. Um, and that, you know, as part of entertainment, there's a spin routine, a comedy routine, which might be what we're seeing unfold. Uh, is this sort of notion of politician as celebrity or politician as uh, entertainer uh, creeping into the point where we're where we're not being as critical as we should be of, of politicians who are meant to be governors. Well, that's that's you've just very you've just perfectly described Boris Johnson, who is in in the concept in in the in the construct of politician and celebrity. Uh, he's kind of the, the the paragon. I mean, look, Donald Trump came from. Don't forget, Donald Trump. Well, not just a multiply bankrupt property developer, but came from reality TV as well. He was a celebrity too, but but Boris Johnson's uh, for people who don't know Boris Johnson's background. I mean, he was a, a journalist, and again, you know, air quotes, uh, and then began popping up. He became a writer and began popping up on uh, British uh, entertainment shows, comedy shows, because he's yeah. you know he's a he's a witty guy. He's very well learned. He's uh, willing to say outrageous things. Absolutely perfect for the, for British uh, television, and it really uh, it, you know developed a quite big profile. Whilst you know being you know having roles like editor of Spectator, so this is a kind of a literate celebrity, if you like, and he parlayed that into a political career, and uh, and look where he is now. The problem, as as Peter Oborn as pointed out in his book about Boris Johnson, is um, the man is fundamentally not serious. He's an entertainer. He, he's not engaged with uh, the issues of governing. He's not engaged with the rigour and demands of governing. I was fascinated to read recently Dominic Cummings. I, uh, I follow Dominic Cummings' um, uh, uh, blog. Uh, he recently explained how early on in the Boris Johnson prime, prime, prime ministership, he called Cummings in and said, look, um, Dominic, look, it's, it's absolutely, he, he, being the prime minister is like dragging a 747 down a tarmac. I'd like to actually go and spend more time at uh, Chequers writing my book on Shakespeare. Do you think I could do that? Um, 
this is a man who's not serious about governing. This is a man who's not serious about the responsibilities of office, high office, um, who sees the prime ministership as a you know performative thing and 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 that's all and that fundamental lack of seriousness i think has you know been demonstrated time and time again in the british government's response particularly the early response to the pandemic um in australia again i think we're at a different point so scott morrison certainly no celebrity um uh, and we have had celebrities in politics and they haven't fared that well um i think peter garrett did all right um but you know he'd actually run a significant organization the australian conservation foundation for for a period after he actually you know, stopped being a, a, a musician. Um, but uh, the, I think we are more inclined to treat politics as being about celebrity in Australia now than we used to, because it's easier. I'm talking about, about we as in the media. It's easier. It's easier to talk about politics as being about celebrity and being about um, you know, name recognition and being about um, uh, image um because sporting contest or sport or sporting that's the other dimension to it so it's 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 easier to engage in that kind of journalism where politics is a horse race so it's a personality clash uh it's a simple context a contest rather than actually looking at it from the difficult perspective which is you know policy looking at evidence you know looking at breaking down policy into their component parts and actually doing the hard work. Um, but, but that's boring, Bernard. Nobody finds that entertaining, Bernard. Well, this is why, you know, leadership contests get, you know, right through the roof and, you know, no one's particularly interested in the minutiae of, um, of tax policy. I mean, you know, we all know this, but as the media in Australia shrinks um, and, you know, fewer resources are spent on it um, and a lot of older, better informed, uh, if not necessarily better, journalists leave the profession uh, and give way to you know more junior people who perhaps don't have as long a memory you know for whom the Rudd government is now you know ancient history let alone you know Keating, Howard or Hawke. Uh, I think we're going to end up increasingly in that kind of politics as performance whether it's sporting performance or theatrical performance we're going to be more in that space because it's just the easiest space to be for busy journalists and you know, it's uh, from that point of view, I have a lot of sympathy for everyone in the media who's struggling to kind of get across important issues of substance um, when their editors and producers say, well, look, I've got this car crash on Parramatta Road that, um, you know, is going to be much more interesting for the viewers um, than, um, than what you're offering. One of the things that uh, you frequently do on your Twitter feed, and I guess it, 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 it would be remiss of me to not ask you, uh, is pick up on the fact that um, some of the material that is published in the mainstream press, um, whether it's intended to be or not, uh, appears to have the structure of something that's come from a political office. Um, mm. uh, in, in, in sort of 25 words or less, I guess, what, what are your concerns in that regard? Well, it's access to journalism. It's swapping either, you know, a speech that's going to be given tomorrow, uh, you know, get an early draft of the speech, or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a advanced copy of a policy or some sort of heads up about some announcement that's coming. It's access journalism. It trades access, i.e. getting access to that kind of information so that you can file a, 
file a piece for the morning paper or do a piece to, to the evening news in exchange for offering an uncritical take on, well, it's not even a take. It's just, it's just simply recycling what you've been given. Um, it's, and it's, 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 it's exclusive. Um, it, the, the only thing that's exclusive about it is that you've got it before somebody else. Um, and the, uh, yeah, exactly. and, and, it, and it means that, and it means that really substantial announcements or, you know, noteworthy speeches are handed to the public completely without analysis or context and uncritically, because the, the journalist knows that, well, if I get this speech that's going to be dropped, they're going to be given tomorrow, and I say, well, this is a load of crap, and look what this minister or, or senior public servant's going to say. I'm going to be critical of that. Well, that'll be the last speech they ever get, or the last drop they ever get. So they understand that's the trade-off of access journalism, is you don't bite the hand that feeds you. And it's, I think it's deeply corrosive of the quality of public debate. I guess, you know, it's politicians say all sorts of interesting things in speeches, and never get covered anymore, because... You know, we only get told, we, all, all speeches in, in Australia these days, and both sides of politics do this, they're all reported in the future tense. <laughs> it's all Anthony Albanese will say tomorrow. Um, you, you know, you don't, you very rarely read an article that says Anthony Albanese said in a speech today that X. All the coverage is, you know, ahead of time because that's how staffers and politicians like it because they know no one's going to bag the speech yeah. that the they risky. received earlier. Yeah, the risk in that uh, is that what might happen is the outlet completely ignores the actual, uh, the old school thing of, um, what was the phrase that we see in speeches, Bernard? It's the um, check, check before, yeah. Yeah, check before delivery. Check before check delivery. after delivery. Yeah. Check after delivery, yeah. which, which, you know, you is something that you would hope people would hold to, I guess. Um, the media uh, has a responsibility to report. <clears throat> you know, I've seen you talk about this on several occasions and write about it. Um, there is a role for, you know, the, the dealing with the reporting of, of an announcement What's your biggest problem with the way in which that's done? Um, I think that the, the tendency to engage in stenography um, and the reluctance to critique what is being said on the hoof, if you like, you know, as it's being said, is very problematic. So it means that you know, a lot of journalists, and this is particularly the case, that I think of the ABC, you know, the, so we, we're journalists of record. We're there to tell people what politicians said and did. We're not, there to, we're not there to offer our take on it. We're not there to apply our judgment to it. We let the, we let the, the, the reader or the viewer, the viewer make that decision. And that mentality, when you that that's that's fine if you're working in an environment where people are operating in good faith. I don't think we're operating in an environment where people are uh, acting in good faith anymore. And I think it behoves journalists to consider what that means for being a journalist of record. And does that mean that being a journalist of record, without attempting to critique what you are relaying, what you're acting as a relay point for uh, is correct or not 
risks misleading the reader or the viewer. And, you know, if politicians are out there seeking to mislead, journalists simply repeat what they are told, does that mean the journalist is being a, you know, virtually a party to deception? And well, therefore, what does that mean for the kind of journalism that they do? And um, that's why I put that question to Simon Longstaff at the Crikey Talks event the other night. I said, well, you know, how do we resolve that tension between the journalists of record? He says, I'm, I'm not going to dare tell viewers and listeners what to think versus being an active party to deception. And uh, you know, you made this very nice distinction between the craft and the profession of journalism. Um, and, you know, look, it is hard and you don't always get the opportunity and you may not have the background to know that someone's sort of deceiving. It's, um, which goes back it's, to your, uh, you know, yeah, which goes back to your point earlier about the, 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 the absence of corporate memory um, in a news. Well, well, there's that plus the way plus the way media is conducted now. I mean, journalists don't. You go to a press conference and someone asks the the, the, the prime minister a, a good question, and he, he refuses to um, answer it properly. It's very rare that another journalist will actually follow that up and say, "Well, prime minister, you didn't ask. You didn't answer that question. Please answer it." Now, it does happen occasionally, but um, it doesn't happen enough. There's not enough collegiality between journalists. Um, they, you know, everyone's everyone's keen to get their quote or their their soundbite for for their, you know, to to so that they can file on deadline. And uh -huh. once you're outside um, Canberra, once you're outside or or outside Sydney or Melbourne or whatever, um, most of the people at press conferences are junior reporters. They've got an editor or a producer in their ear, telling them what questions to ask. They're not interested in following up someone else's question. Um, you know, they're interested in sticking to the agenda of the paper, whether the, you know, the agenda is a particularly political one or simply, oh, I want to get a good soundbite. Um, so the capacity to actually do this real-time, uh, you know, validation or, or at least some sort of critique of what's being said is, is, is limited by the structure of the way that we do media at the moment as well as things like corporate memory. There is something, I'm well aware of the time you've been very generous with. The, I've got, the uh, we've, I think we can go a little bit longer because I've been, I've been uh, let off the leash for until 4.30. So let's okay. keep going. Uh, let's keep going. Well, I think there is a, uh, there's an important point that needs to be also considered. Um, some of the best writers I've ever read um uh, journalist, and I, I mentioned Christopher Hitchens earlier on, that received a, or did a proper, I guess, a, had a proper grounding in critical thinking, mm. read philosophy, read widely, read uh, uh, a range of things. In fact, he's a book on critical theory, which I haven't still got to myself, but um, it, to what extent have we not placed a greater uh, a greater focus on, on, on understanding the classics? You know, I've, I've referred to Swift. I've written about Machiavelli recently. Um, all these all these things that enable you to uh, assess critically through the eyes of 
the, the older thinkers or thinkers from another era mm. of what's going on today. I mean, it, it, do you have any reflections on that in terms of critical thinking, critical thought, Ben? Look, I've, I've long time, for a long time, thought that our education system is not skewed enough toward critical thinking uh, and teaching critical thinking skills. And it's not so much about the canon. I mean, look, you know, I've I, uh, I read Swift and Machiavelli and uh, you know, much, of, much of the Western literary canon. I wouldn't necessarily dictate to others that they should do the same. Uh, I, think, I think people should build their own canon of, uh, of what they consider to be great and meaningful works. Um, and I'm, you know, one of my, I'm just a, just another old white male. So obviously I'm going to be talking about, uh, you know, the Western literary <laughs> tradition, but I think the, 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 the act of, when we talk about the idea of a canon and about critical thinking, implicit in that is the idea of a kind of a process of self-discovery and self-reflection on the part of the individual and whether it's someone, you know, going, you know, going through a bunch of dead white males or someone engaged in, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the best works on gender theory or queer theory or um, uh, Marxism or um, uh, you know, any variety of, you know, much more modern aspects of, of the contemporary education. They're engaged in a process of self-discovery and a process of honing their capacity to make meaningful judgments about the things that they're reading about and the things that they're talking about. Um, so no, it doesn't matter what your canon is. If it's delivering you the critical thinking skills, then um, uh, then that's that's doing the job. And I just don't think there's there's enough of that. Um, I don't, you know, the, the canon could be Judas Butler, you know, it could be James Baldwin. Um, it doesn't matter. It's it's about developing those critical thinking skills, and you do that by by engaging with really high quality, demanding texts that require you to bring, you know, your your thinking skills to it, and that's what you know. I, I think with the with the greater focus on, um, you know, people are quick to demonise um, the contemporary arts curriculum as, um, you know, just you know, full of fluff. But I think the you know the, the broader focus on vocation higher education as vocational um, for all that it's economically positive, I think is, has, has led to some sort of diminution of, of the capacity of the, the higher curriculum to impart critical thinking skills. Now, look, all of that's a rant of, you know, a guy who went to university in the 1980s and, and you know, had the kind of education that, um, you know, you could get back then and didn't pay very much for it, by the way. Um, as opposed to people who've now got to basically rack up a mortgage in order to you know, get a degree that's going to enable them to get a job that they can actually afford to get a real mortgage. So um, I think you know, all those comments could be taken with a grain of salt, uh, reflecting the possibly out of touch middle-aged man. But and then, I, think no, that, um, I think you've got a point and don't, don't sort of demean yourself. Um, <laughs> in, oh, well, if, if, if no one else will do it, I will. So. Uh, well, I'm not about to do that because no, you and I need to talk again. But the... <laughs> The, um, there's something else that causes, I think, the problem that you've highlighted, at least in part, 
and that is there's this platform that allows for 280 character character posts that people focus on and contribute to and carry on with um and the attention span seems to be you know the attention span to look at something like a, a book on QAnon, um for example um may not always be there because because of the way in which we operate uh, hmm. with social media, for, for instance. Uh, well, look, our brains are plastic and they get shaped by how we use them. And that's been the case since, you know, we, you know, we moved from uh, oral culture to, to chipping away on tablets. I mean, technology has always been, played a dramatic role in shaping our brains and you know, our brains now work very differently to the way they did 30 years ago, let alone 30 centuries ago. Um, but and there's positives and negatives to that. I mean, I think we do have an attention span problem. I certainly do. And you know, I'm I've only been on the internet for the last 30 years. You know, I grew up before the internet, but I'm pretty sure I've got an attention problem these days. But there are positives to that. That uh, you know, it's like memory. I don't, I don't, I don't think we remember as well now as we used to. But we don't need to. We've got these you know remarkable tool to get information from anywhere. That uh, you know is is people in the 1980s would have been astonished by. So um, that, that kind of plasticity of the brain thing is always happening and going to continue to happen. Um, but where, where, where I think it's gone wrong, and I speak as a, you know, someone who used to be a kind of a bit of a utopian about um, the, you know, the benefits of inter interconnectivity, where it's gone wrong is that social media, which could have been a really great technology for bringing us together, has been a um, has instead been a, a mechanism to bring out our worst impulses and our our, our tribalism, uh, our you know, our preference for uh, simplicity, and I don't mean simplicity in a good sense. Um, our you know our preference for the simple over the complex, and our um, our you know our tendency to hostility. And I think that's that's been this profound. That's been the, that's been the accelerant that someone, you know, the the the, the deities of, of technology have poured on, you know, a pre-existing social mix that, that I you know I think emerged in the two thousands and early two thousands and tens around the lingering consequences of you know economic policies and income stagnation and bottle of disillusionment with governments that, that's happened since 2000. I think that that whole process would have been bad enough without without social media, but social media has made it absolutely toxic. And, uh, you know, I think we're still a long way from seeing the end of that sort of process of toxification um, that's been going on. Because uh, the, 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 the people who display those worst impulses and the people who want to exploit those worst impulses, to monetize those worst impulses. They are very creative and they are constantly finding new and exciting and innovative ways to, to exploit you know, the, 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 the worst angels of our nature. And they've got this wonderful technology um, to do that. So um, you know, what, what could have been a, you know, potentially a very good thing and still is in some ways, you know, can be a very good thing. I think is you know is the accelerant that has turned you know what was a bad enough situation into an absolute you know bonfire of uh, 
of, uh, of civic discourse and democracy. Um, we, we're both reasonably uh, politically aware, <laughs> given the nature of our work. Uh, there'll be people who listen to this that are disengaged from politics, uh, either because they're dissatisfied or because they're too busy living life to worry about um, the actors on the stage that, that sort of that cavort around on their television screen around six o'clock or on a or on a panel program on some on some news channel. Um, there are participants in a democracy. You know, there are, there are you know the politicians are players, the media, whether the, whether individuals in the press wish to identify themselves as or actually acknowledge their players are players. The voters themselves are also important. They get that they, they um, have a part to play. In decide what they need to do to, to, to better inoculate themselves against deception um, when they're watching what's going on. What are the questions that a voter needs to ask? Um, the, the, the threshold question is, um, why should you believe this person? And what are they what are they seeking to do? And why are they seeking to do it? I mean, they're the, they're the basic questions. Every, you know, every politics is so stage managed these days that literally everything that is said um, is said for a, you know, very clear reason. It's been planned. It's, it's been scheduled the crafting of the words, you know, it's received a lot of effort. And if someone's making that effort to convey that message to you, then um, you need to understand the performative aspect of it and you need to understand why someone is making that performance and what they're trying to achieve. Um, because, you know, if you do, if you are disengaged from politics, um, what you, what I, what I think you've got to remember is you're still going to end up voting and that person or, or group of people who is making an appeal for your vote, um, a lot is riding on that for them. About $2.60, actually, in, um, in, in, fund, in public funding from the Australian Electoral Commission, but obviously um, power as well. So, um, yeah, look, I don't know what the proportion is. I suspect about 70% of the electorate is mostly disengaged. I suspect about 30% of it is completely disengaged. Um, yeah. it'd be the, num the numbers will be different across different demographics. I suspect younger people are much more disengaged. Um, uh, but, you know, that's stereotypes, you know, different age groups. I mean, some of the most, some of the most engaged and, and brilliant sort of you know, political actors are very, very young people, even people below 18. So, um, so, you know, the, the, and these are the, I suspect most of those people are people who will say, look, all politicians lie, you know, what's, you know, who cares? They all do it. They're all corrupt. They all lie. They all steal. Um, it's not actually true about the corruption or the stealing thing, but, you know, that's the kind of stereotype that people have of, of politicians. Um, and, you know, it's, it can be, there's a kind of a, the, the, the big switch off, the big disengagement that's happened in politics right around the world in democracies, but 
in Australia, you know, maybe from the 1960s, maybe the 50s onwards, that, that slow transition from having mass membership parties where the numbers of, of the Labor Party, the numbers of the Liberal Party and the National Party, you know, were in the hundreds of thousands, if not, if not millions. To a, to a democracy that we have now where the parties are hollowed out, there's, you know, only a handful of people in them. If you can stack the branches with usually with some sort of, uh, you know, religious group, you can take over, you know, uh, a significant chunk of a, of a political party. Uh, along that way, you know, who's, who's, who's at fault for that? Well, kind of we are, the voters are. We're, we're the ones who, who disengaged. Um, but we've allowed the political parties the political parties have in turn responded to that by making sure that they will continue to exist even in this hollowed out uh, existence. One of those mechanisms is, is actually public funding, by the way. Um, and I don't know, no one's come up with a brilliant idea as to how to address disengagement and how to, you know, we're not going to go back to the era of mass membership political parties. What we do need, though, is to have mass political engagement by people. Um, and you know, willingness to actually get active, even if it's talking to your neighbour about, you know, local, local planning proposals. That's sort of, that's why in the book we're you know talking about this idea of, you know, we're going to we we do have to rebuild politics, and it's not so much about the finished model that we end up building in a generation's time. It's the process along the way. It's that process of connecting up of, of actually engaging with the people around you, and not just via a keyboard. And you know, I am quite. I'm quite intrigued by the voices of campaigns across different seats. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are genuinely deeply unhappy about the quality of the party political the, the partisan political system, and look at look at um, you know they look at the politicians that are being offered by major parties and they're simply not happy, and they look at the policy offerings and they're simply not happy, and they want someone from their own community, you know, chosen through a process that is internal to that community of you know to stand against these people and you know that gives me hope that uh, you know it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of numbers the voices of candidates get in uh, in the coming election i'll be really disappointed if it's a, if it's a flop because you know if for the first time it seems to me that we've got some sort of community level engagement and attempt to reconstruct politics from the ground up in a way that is not going to happen with the rather ossified structures of the mainstream political parties one final question, Bernard. I realise that uh, you, you, we're on the cusp of um, your, your limit here in terms of time. Uh, we do have minor parties, and most recently One Nation, this cartoon campaign that's come out, that are riffing uh, on the theme of you know, anti-establishment uh, dissatisfaction with politics more generally. Um, what do you think the impact of that kind of discourse, particularly when it's jazzed up in, in an animation, might be? Look, there is a, obviously a, there's a long-running groundswell of, of discontent with government, dis disillusionment, distrust. Um, marginal political parties have long sought to tap into that. Uh, One Nation's the best example in Australia. But the mainstream parties try and do as well. I mean, this is why Scott Morrison today is sort of talking out of both sides of his mouth about the protesters in in Victoria. He's, he's saying on the one hand, you know, condemn violence, but on the other hand, I can completely understand their frustrations. Um, there's a, you know, everyone wants to tap, everyone wants to kind of use that that energy that's out there, uh, that energy 
directed against government and some of it's malicious a lot of it is simply frustration uh, uh you know and some of it is you know a genuine resentment of 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 impositions mm. on people's freedom so that energy there is at a pretty high level at the moment and there will be multiple players trying to exploit it mm. uh, clive palmer's trying to exploit it pauline hansen will continue to exploit it i dare say quite successfully um mm. but when has it ever actually led to now, the history in Australia is that even if, even those who successfully tap into that resentment don't end up changing anything. I mean, let's you know look at the was it ninety nine the Queens ninety eight ninety nine Queensland ninety nine election I think it was that that gave one nation 99. yeah gave Pauline Hanson gave one nation thirteen MPs in the in the Queensland House uh, you know and you know within a matter of weeks they were splintering apart and within a matter of months they'd vanished as a as a political party. So these things tend to be a bit cyclical and we get really obsessed about them when they peak. Um, and I suspect we're probably going to see something like that at the next sort of coming at the coming federal election. We're going to see that sort of, you know, a big minor party vote mm -hmm. again that's been rising in recent years. I think it will rise further. But the, 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 the major parties have got a bit of a lock on the structure of politics at the moment. And that's why I think if there is going to be change, it does have to be this kind of grassroots rebuild by communities themselves rather than people trying to tap into you know existing political players or existing figures establishment figures like Clyde Palmer the guy's a mining millionaire for goodness sake he's not some sort of you know fringe you know player from outside the system um, instead of those sort of people trying to tap into it it's got to grow organically dare I use that word um, in communities and that's how I think it's you know, the, the optimistic, the, the tiny optimistic part of me sees that, that you know, is a chance of actually developing. Uh, Bernard, thank you for joining me today. I've been talking with Bernard Keane, who's the political editor at Crikey. He's also the author of a book called Lies and Falsehoods, The Morrison Government and a New Culture of, De New Culture of Deceit. Bernard, thank you so much for your time. And I'll encourage people to have a look at the book and maybe get it for someone for Christmas. It'd make an ideal Christmas present for uh, for starting arguments around the uh, the lunch table. So yeah, go ahead and get it. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.